Well, if you are new to Trinity, welcome. We are in a series in Isaiah, and we are in a series within a series in Isaiah here in uh, chapter 9. So we are walking through, as our Advent series, the different names of God, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, that's this week, and next week, Prince of Peace. So I welcome you, I greet you, my name's Tim, I'm one of the pastors here, and in particular, I want to welcome these folks, and we are so glad you are here with us this morning, and uh, thank you, Maddie, and thank you, Cindy, for how you're serving these guys. Love that. So very glad. Isaiah 9 is more profound than a Christmas card. Nothing wrong with the giving and receiving of Christmas cards that contain the words in Isaiah 9. But I just want to say to you, it's just so far more glorious than I think we initially perceive. Or personally for me, I received the Christmas card, just being honest. For unto us child is born, uh, yeah, that. L- little, no, not little, no thought is really given to the words on the card. Here's the thing. Every word on the card counts. Matters every word. Every word is gloriously revealing our God. It is more glorious than an indifferent reading or an indifferent quoting of it. It is more glorious. It is awesome. It is awe striking awesome more so than a nice card among the many cards that find itself on your kitchen counter or on the mantle. More amazing than we first realize, more worshipful than we've ever worshiped, more breathtaking than we've ever considered, Isaiah 9 in particular, verse 6, is to be considered deeply, word by word, Glory exists in verse six alone. Isaiah nine, the prophet communicates an unimagined message to the remnant of people in Isaiah's day. We shared this last week, but when, it, when, we're, when we're flipping the page from chapter eight to chapter nine, it begins, but there will be no gloom for her her who was in anguish. It should trigger something in us if we've been reading our Bibles well. That the content of Isaiah is radically shifting in verse number one. Something should grab our attention here. Before we dive in, let's pray. God, we ask for your grace. We ask for your wisdom. We ask that you give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. We ask that we would, as a result of hearing this sermon and the previous ones and next week, we would 
we would know truth better. We would know you better. And we wouldn't just know it to know it. We would know this truth to be inspired to worship you, to lay down our lives for you, that you would receive all glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 9 Isaiah is prophetically communicating an unimaginable message. I say unimaginable, it's, it's unimaginable for the people here in his day. They, they could have never, they would have never dreamed up this message. Actually, you and I would have never dreamed up this message either. A child will be born, a Messiah. God himself will come in all of these people there in all of their disparity and all of their darkness. Christ will come. Here's my big idea this morning. Here's what we want to get across. The passivity of man and the activity of God is on display. That's what we'll see here in chapter nine. And it's on display in the past and in the future, which is to inform our present. It's to inform what we're going through right now, what they were going through right then. For unto us, everlasting Father. All right, let's unpack that. Point number one, passive people, active God. If verse number seven like it was appropriate, there was a response as Richard was reading that. We get to the end of this section and we come to these words, the very end of verse seven, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. If, if verse number seven was a painting, that would be the backdrop to everything prior. The zeal of the Lord will do this. That's in the background, meaning Everything else he's saying, everlasting father, prince of peace, wonderful counselor, mighty God, all of these things are in the forefront, but this is back there just highlighting everything you see in the forefront. The zeal of the Lord will do this, or you and I won't. <laughs> that's, that's how we could read the end of verse number seven. Your and I zeal won't get this done. Never has, never will, but the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I was struck as we were singing. Wasn't planning to share this, but I was kind of ruined, undone while we were singing. The Lord has done this. These things that we're singing, the Lord has done this. I'm here today because the Lord has done this. The Lord took on flesh. He came as a baby. Jesus, the Messiah, Savior came. And here I am. I'm worshiping God and I'm hearing your voice. We're worshiping God because he came. The zeal of the Lord has done this. Not my zeal, not your zeal. Last week, we asked this question, what did the people of God need to hear in their day? In the darkness, in the distress, in the disparity, 
Remember, the Assyrians are marching into their cities, attacking them, dragging them off into captivity, exile. What, what is the most needed message in that kind of darkness? Submit to you, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. In the middle of their disparity, in the middle of armies marching in our city, what do they need to hear? They need to hear, they need to know God is with us. I submit to you, whatever it is that you might be facing today, whatever darkness, whatever disparity exists in your world, what do you need to know? What do you need to hear is Emmanuel, God is with you. And what is the question in your darkness and your disparity? Where is God? Isaiah is written to them and it's written just as much to us today to know God is with you. It's not just an anthem we sing. We believe we believe. So into the darkness, light comes, right? So he begins, verse, verse one, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. What, what all does that mean? Well, Naphtali and Zebulun was a bit to the north of where these people live in Judah and Jerusalem. And Naphtali and Zebulun were the first cities, if you will, to fall to the Assyrians. So basically they've been watching their brothers and sisters be carried off and they know, and we're next. So when he says of Naphtali and Zebulun that they were contempt, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Then he says, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. That's, a, that's, that's in reference to them again. They are the way of the sea. What he's basically saying is verse two, that God has turned the lights on in the darkness. Look at verse two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And so we said it last week, and we just briefly remind us again this week, we need to remember when God turned the lights on in our hearts and he brought us from darkness to light in him. And he's reminding them or showing them you're in darkness, but Emmanuel's gonna come and there will be a glorious light. What's more, in my study, it was showing me that there's this little amazing detail and it's this. And this is the only place that Galilee is referenced as Galilee of nations or your version might say Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the peoples, widely speaking, is what he's saying. And it's a great picture of when God turns the lights on and he brings us from darkness to light 
When the hope comes in the person of Emmanuel, old names change and new names come. Old life passes away. The old me will be gone. The new me will come. And that's why when we say, I am a Christian, it has meaning. The old has passed away, the new has come, and this is no longer Galilee, it's Galilee of the nations. It is incredible that here in Isaiah, there's this reference to the nations, meaning you, you are Galilee to the non-Jewish world, to all the peoples. What's the big deal? Well, it's that no one else in Scripture referred to the Gentiles, or the, sorry, to Galilee as Gentiles until Isaiah did so prophetically. In the context of the Messiah who is to come, he uses this phrase. And here Isaiah is introducing to us that when the king comes, he comes to the world. Did you notice last week in our Christmas party at each of the host's homes, someone, one individual or two or three shared at the dinner and they shared something in regards to um, how Christmas might be celebrated around the world. And one of the points we were trying to make, whether um, directly or more subtly, it's this. Jesus didn't just come to America. Jesus came to the world. He came to save the world. Now, when Christ came, want you thinking in your New Testament now, when Christ came and he was tempted in the wilderness, we can read about that in Matthew chapter four. He's being tempted in the wilderness and he defeats the enemy. How, right? With, with the word of God, he defeats the enemy. And then you know where he goes from there? Let me read to you. It's on the screen behind me. Now, when he, he referring to Jesus, he's just out of the temptation. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. What is Jesus saying? The light is right in front of you. The light is here. Jesus begins his preaching ministry. We don't usually think of these, these towns. It's Galilee to us. He begins it right here in Zephilin, Zebulun and Naphtali. Let me finish. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. They were in the shadow of death. From that time... Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it, it was in those dark days that Isaiah is prophesying. He said those very words. And now we look to Matthew, we look to the New Testament and Jesus, wow, he's, he's living those words. He is the light. And so Isaiah spoke a prophetic vision of the Messiah who would come to the darkness and bring 
light. John says it. Well, he records Jesus saying it. I am the light of the world. Emmanuel, God with us, light of the world. And all of that came in their day and comes to us today. And I want you to know we're passive. <laughs> we're passive in the text. They were passive in the text. We're passive, meaning we're, we're passive in our ability to turn our own lights on, spiritually speaking. It's why we preach. It's why we evangelize. It's why we share our lives. We do so because God is active. God is at work then when he came and today now. He's at work. He is at work making himself known. Our activity doesn't turn the lights on. But we share, we evangelize knowing we serve a God who does turn the lights on. The only activity they were doing in their day was rebellious. Their activity was distancing themselves from God. And in the midst of that distancing, God comes, sovereignly comes, turns the lights on. Mercy came to them. Grace and mercy has come to you. Grace and mercy came to your heart even when you were actively rebelling against him. Light of the world. Your active rebellion, your passivity, your passive pursuit of God. In the midst of that, God was actively turning the lights on in your heart. Number two, past, present, and future. Again, we really don't typically think all that deeply about what it means that he's an everlasting father. What did it mean for them to hear those words? Does it make any difference for the suffering people of God then or now to hear those words? Isaiah, he's already told us again, chapter seven, that Emmanuel is coming. And that was to be a source of encouragement to them. And I'm saying it's to be a source of encouragement to us. That the very presence of God himself, that is to make all the difference, even in the disparity, the darkness in which we live. What difference does it make that he came to dwell with us and now dwells in us. Spiritually speaking, these people in Isaiah's day were distant from God. They were religious. They did a lot of religious activities, but they kept God at arm's length at best. Physically, again, they're under attack from the Syrians. So spiritually and physically, they're living in darkness. And Isaiah reminds them and we talked about this, again, we talked about this last week. If you weren't here last week, please go and listen to that message about he's the mighty God. It's really quite beautiful, and I want to draw your attention to it again this week. At the end of verse four, 
He says, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Talk about passivity. As on the day of Midian, as on the day when God whittled down Gideon's army to a pulp, to a nothing, and said, now you can attack your enemies and you will have victory. When victory will make no sense, humanly speaking, when you have no odds for victory, now you can go and attack your enemy. And isn't it beautiful that here in their darkness, given the context that they're living in, what Isaiah is reminding them of. He's reminding of them of the past faithfulness and the past power of God in their history. And he's speaking to them and he's saying to them that in their current dark circumstances, they're to see the past. They're to see the faithfulness of God. They're to see what God has done. Other commentators speak of verse two and say, you know, it's all caked in Exodus speak. We don't have time this morning, but it's all there. And they're recalling the faithfulness of God to their people back then, the past. God's been faithful. And I wanna say to you this morning, God has been faithful in your life. Look to the past faithfulness of God and all that he's accomplished to bring you to this place this morning. Perhaps you're struggling. Maybe you're distressed. Perhaps you're distracted. Whatever it might be, thank you for being here. Thank God you're here because it's because of your past, all that he's used, all that he's done has brought you to this place. But he doesn't just point to the past, does he? He points to the future. And it's interesting how he words this, and you can read this later a little bit more closely, but he words it as done, the future. Be aware as he's prophesying these things, Christ won't come for another 700 years. We might even think, well, what good is that? Emmanuel's going to come, but what good does that do us right now as the Assyrians are marching in on our city? The same good it does to us is the same good it did to them. Like, in other words, they were to place their faith and their hope in Jesus Christ. Emmanuel is to come and we'll be dead and gone for them. They'll be dead and gone before he ever does. But in that moment, the present the hope of the Savior that's to come. We're to put our faith into him. And that's to affect our current, our right now perspective of the darkness. And church, it's no different from us. We look to the past this Advent season Christ has come. That's why I was so undone as we're singing, fall on your knees. He came. I'm looking back to that. And there was a day when individuals and animals were gathered around the incarnate son of God, 
in that stable came. And just as sure as he came back then, Advent, anticipate, we are looking to that day when our Savior will come again. Everlasting Father. So he speaks to them in their dark situation and he speaks to us in ours as well. And he shares, he shares it as if it's done. To, as if he's just saying, this is so sure. This is so certain. This is so completely absolute, it's done. It's your now reality. One of my favorite commentators in Isaiah, Alec Montier, says it this way. The eye of faith looks at all this but affirms that real though it is, it is not the real reality. As always, the people of God must decide what reading of their circumstances they will live by. Are they to look at the darkness, the hopelessness, the dream shattered and conclude that God has forgotten them? Or are they to recall his past mercies, to remember his present promises and to make great affirmations of faith? These are dark days and we think we got it bad. These are dark days. So the Advent season tells us, it shows us hope is now, right now, as we wait. Number three is I want us to look at the paternal aspects. And actually we'll turn this into a little, little trivia time, little, little question and answer time. So you can reply. Who do we commonly call the father or the founder of our country? Thank you. George Washington. All right, we're starting off in the shallow end. It's pretty easy, right? Who is known as the father of the Constitution? Keep guessing. <laughs> James Madison. There you go. James Madison. But Jefferson's a good guess. He, he was a little involved in that. A little trickier. Who's the father or the founder of basketball? Who said that? You got it. James Naismith. Yeah, that's pretty tough. Who's the father of the printing press? Come on, homeschoolers. Gutenberg, right? Who's the founder of ASL? Gallaudet. Thomas Hopkins Gallaudet. Did I say it right? I'm trying. I asked I, so many times. I'm like, okay, how do you say it again? Here's the thing. Why, why am I doing this? What's the point this morning using these as an example? When we speak of the father of something, we're speaking that not in a relational sense. I'm, in no way is George Washington my father, right? Not, not relationally speaking, but we're speaking of that in the sense of founder, originator, or even author of, Okay. So at this point, as you're reading Isaiah chapter nine, if you're like me, you're starting to get confused because we're talking about Christ. And okay, he's a wonderful counselor. I get that. He's a mighty God. I get that. He's the everlasting father. Huh? Wait, I'm not sure I understand that. In what way is Jesus the everlasting father? Has Isaiah shifted? Is he now talking about the Godhead? 
the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit? And the answer is no. The context drives this. He's talking about Christ here. So we've got to ask the question, in what way is he talking about Christ? Or is Isaiah confused? He's not confused. Here's the thing. Everlasting Father, and some of your versions might do this. It can be translated Father of Eternity. All right, father of eternity, that begins to shift things a little bit, meaning that the Messiah, who is Emmanuel, who is the king, his rule, he's father of forever. More so, he's the father, he's the author, he's the originator of eternity. He's the founder of your eternal salvation in him. I was going to say your eternalness in him, right? Like eternity, your eternity is wrapped in him because he's the author, originator, founder. It originates, your salvation originates in him. He's authored it. He's fathered it. He's fathered new life for you and in you. See, he didn't come to give you a little something. He didn't come to give you a little morality on top of your morality. He didn't come to tweak your hearts a little bit here or there. He came to found something in you. He came to originate something with eternal value in you. He came to author something in you. It's why we speak of him as the ancient of days, the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. Your salvation is entirely, completely authored, rooted in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. He didn't come to tweak. He came to change us through and through. He didn't come to add a little morality. He came to turn our lives right side up in the face of the darkness. Let me read to you Psalm 103. It's got some hints of salvific, sorry, salvation, fathering. Listen to the words to this great Psalm. Bless the Lord. O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Listen to the salvation words and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever? He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. It goes on (laughs) from there. 
I will leave it to you. Salvific, God is authoring, God is originating. He is the everlasting father. He is the father of eternity. And lastly, it's perfected. When I say perfected, I'm emphasizing that word everlasting. The eternal aspect of Christ. The everlasting father, the father of eternity, the alpha and omega, his rule and reign has no end. When we say, for unto us a child is born, his name shall be called everlasting father. Isaiah is helping us to realize your salvation that he authored, your salvation that is originated in Christ, it's no passing thing. Remember from last week, it bears repeating. Verse four, verse five, verse six. They all begin with the word four. Three verses, they all say four, four, four. F-O-R. And what's being spoken of here? For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The everlasting father, the originator of your salvation, the author of your life in Christ, he breaks the yoke. So remember last week, the Assyrians were known for boasting about yokes. They would put a yoke on their slaves, on those they captured. They would boast of that. And it's prophesying of a day when Jesus will come and he will break the yoke. And listen, if you're a believer in the room this morning, if you count Christ your savior, he broke the yoke. He broke the yoke. What yoke? What slavery are we talking about? We're talking about the slavery, the yoke of sin and death in our lives. He's prophesying forward. We're looking backwards. Same yoke. Christ came and he broke the yoke. And then the second four in verse five, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Speaking militarily, speaking enemy, every boot will be defeated. Listen, Christian, follower of Christ, every enemy has been defeated. Not by you. You're passive in that defeating. How did he defeat? How did he break the yoke? How did he defeat every boot of tramping of the warriors? He defeated them on the cross. Christ breaks the yoke your captivity to sin and death and he defeats your enemy. The enemy of your soul is soundly defeated because he is Emmanuel, the everlasting father. And then he rolls into the third four. Four. This is the biggest four. He's saying for the yoke will be defeated. For every boot will be trampled. Four unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father we'll preach prince of peace next week
What is this Christmas spirit? People talk about the Christmas spirit. Are you in the Christmas spirit? Some sort of warm, fuzzy, you know, spirit that we're supposed to get into this time of year. Typically, culturally, that's meant to think of, you know, doing good to others. And that's wonderful. Like we all enjoy the guy who dresses up like a Santa Claus and starts handing out thousand dollar bills, right? Well, thousand dollars, not bill. Starts handing out money to the homeless. Or we love the story, you know, the headlines that says, you know, so-and-so, his philanthropy, he's giving. Sorry, that's another hard one. You know, 50 children, a trip to Disney World. And we go, that's the Christmas spirit. And while I appreciate those things, those acts of kindness, and that's wonderful. Church, those are glib ideas when it compares to the Christmas season. The Christmas spirit is a child came. The epitome of weakness in our minds, humanity, humanly speaking, he is the epitome of weakness and he came to powerfully overcome your yoke, defeat your enemy for unto us a child is born and he is the everlasting father. He came in the epitome of weakness, he came to author your salvation in him. So no matter what darkness you might be facing today, you can know that Christ came and Christ comes as a father, as an author, as an originator of your faith. And because he's everlasting, he's the finisher of your faith. He doesn't just originate it. He doesn't just author it. He doesn't just kind of put it before you, but now he walks you through to the end. He is the everlasting father. He will bring you all the way home. For unto us, a child is born and his name is called Everlasting Father. Let's stand together, worship our God.